the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing on with the uh, book by Don Enavoldson, entitled The Kingdom, From Creation to the Millennium. And uh, the last two chapters of the book, we have seen how God is in the process of restoring his kingdom by first restoring his uh, likeness and his image. And that's important because uh, going back to the original blueprint of Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 31, uh, we, as mankind, as his human children, are made in both his likeness and his image. And after chapter 3, when uh, we had uh, the invasion of the spiritual rebellion in heaven coming down to earth, and um, unfortunately Adam and Eve um, believing suggestions and believing uh, ideas proposed by the fallen angel— uh, speaking to them in the form of the serpent, they uh, began to mistrust God, not believe God um, had their best interests in minds in mind, and unfortunately, uh, they acted on um, these suggestions. After they used their imagination to believe those suggestions by the enemy, and then uh, after uh, meditating on those suggestions, they acted out on them, and they voluntarily handed over their authority back over to, uh, or back to, I shouldn't say back to, because Satan really never received authority from God. They handed their authority over to um, Satan. And um, where we are in this kingdom book from creation to the millennium, God, Father God's in the process of restoring his kingdom. And uh, he's doing that, we're at the point where this Messiah who has been prophesied, who has been um, basically anticipated all throughout the, uh, the Jewish Testament, is, has now come upon the scene uh, with the advent of John the Baptist preaching that uh, God's kingdom is going to be restored through this um, Jewish Messiah. His name is, in Hebrew, Yeshua, 
Hamashiach. Yeshua means Jesus in Hebrew, and Hamashiach means the Messiah. And uh, so the last two shows, we have um, focused on restored likeness in chapter 12 of the kingdom book and um, restored image uh, in chapter 13. We are now moving on to um, chapter 14, which is the restoration of mankind's dominion. So the author, Donna Volson, uh, begins with the story about the Roman centurion and uh, the discussion that the centurion had with Jesus, the Messiah, regarding a problem that he had, um, which was a um, sick, I believe it was his daughter, and... um, let me see here. And the focus on chapter 14 is about the issue of dominion and authority. And so the chapter begins with the centurion approaching Jesus. Um, he is in military array, costume. Uh, he's a commander of a century. It's a unit of about 80 men. And he, as the highest-ranking professional, is um, not political uh, officer, but he's a, um, he's a military man. And um, the co- author says he was somewhat equivalent to a modern-day uh, non-commissioned officer, like a master sergeant. And um, his job was to carry out um, responsibility for care and training of the men under his direction and control. And he was, but he was also a tactician when it came to um, battle and warfare. The centurion had a problem, and he said, my servant, I'm sorry, it wasn't his daughter, it was his servant, is lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. This is found in the account with Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 5 through 6. And Jesus, um, who was always compassionate towards suffering, offered to come to his home and heal the suffering servant. But the centurion um, shook his head and answered um, in a dis- demonstration of humility, not normally expected from a Roman soldier. And he said, quote, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I will say to one, go, and the soldier goes. And to another, come. And the soldier comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. And um, let's see, that's found in Romans, let's see here. That's in verse 8 and 9 in the same account of Matthew chapter 8. And um, 
when Jesus heard his, this response, he really marveled at the answer and how it was delivered. And he turned to those around him, and he made the comment in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 8. He says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And the Jewish um, Bible um, uses the word trust in place of faith there. So during this encounter, said the author, um, the essence of kingdom dominion, which has to do with authority, was on display for all to see who were around and heard this conversation transpiring between the Roman centurion and Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. Um, The centurion had an understanding of how authority actually worked, how it operated. And Jesus identified that authority and how it worked as faith or trust. The centurion also knew categorically that when one when the one with authority actually speaks, um, his words were consistently carried out. And in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 8, it says the servant was healed at that very moment. So the author points out to speak of restoration of dominion, which is what Jesus came to do was restore the original idea of the kingdom with uh, man receiving the likeness of God, being made in the likeness of God, and to image that likeness horizontally out to the world, to be God's, Father God's representative, to represent God, if you will. And um, so we've studied in the last two chapters that restored likeness is a reconnection of the children of God, of the individual, the human, back with or back to the Father. It's reconnecting mankind back to a relationship, intimate relationship of trust, of faith, of dependency on Father God. And this is all carried out through the bridge, which I call the bridge of blood, of Yeshua, of Jesus, back to the Father. But uh, what, what, how do we manifest that likeness? Again, we are, and this is what we talked about last week, we are kings and we're priests. Kings um, having the authority to have dominion, but priests who serve in a servant role of ministry to those who are hurting uh, in the context of restoring the kingdom back to uh, the earth and to delegate authority, godly authority, back to mankind to rule and reign over the earth in a kingdom context, both in a priestly context, um, which is to act as an intermediary between God and man, and also in a administrative or um commanding function as a king would do. And we talked about king's um, responsibilities, but mostly to take care, to oversee, to be shepherds to those in the kingdom. 
But the dominion uh, part of that restoration is something that is really more related to restoring mankind's purpose in exercising his divine authority. So we see in the fall of um, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve um, unfortunately believed the uh, false suggestions and um, quite honestly were tricked and hoodwinked and were defrauded of their inheritance of the earth. Um, And when they gave authority over to the serpent, over to the rebellious angel, um, we have been suffering the effects ever since. So with that fall, mankind lost his purpose in exercising divine authority. Mankind was originally designed to take on the likeness of God and then, as a result, to become later the visible image of God using his authority, mankind's authority, as a ruler of the earth to administer the will of God to the created order. Instead, man chose to wield his dominion in the pursuit of his own will because in the fall, he lost his purpose of why he was originally created. Again, we'll say the original purpose was to take on the likeness of God to then become the visible image of God using his authority to administer and to rule and reign over the earth. So when man chooses to wield authority or dominion in the pursuit of his own will, that creates a problem. With the restoration that Messiah Jesus is bringing to the earth, He wants to bring back, his purpose is to bring back God's likeness and image and the appropriate exercise of dominion once again to become possible. And Messiah Jesus is showing up both as the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man with the idea of demonstrating to man what man is to replicate, what he is to Uh, basically reproduce um, in his function as an authoritative figure with authority and dominion over the earth. Mankind's purpose was restored, and with it, dominion could resume its appropriate function. So the author goes on to say, well, how does this, how does this occur? Um, the first thing we have to look at is prayer. And we have to understand that the primary vehicle that God designed for exercise of mankind's dominion is prayer. That is the mechanism through which the dominion is going to be expressed. But prayer is more, according to the author, not just a uh, ritual incantation 
intended to either please God or try to coerce God into some sort of action that the the person praying wants. It's not what uh, prayer is in this context at all. Um, it's not limited either to a be a ve- vehicle for requesting what needs uh, need to be met or emergencies need to be lessened or mitigated. Though we are certainly encouraged to ask when we are in need, but we're talking about the exercise of prayer in a different context. It's not primarily to be a therapy session where we um, basically lay our troubles and our anxieties on God and hope for comfort, though, though again, we are told that that is appropriate for certain situations and circumstances. We can see that in 1 Peter um, chapter 5, verse 7. So the prayer that the author is talking about in this context is effective prayer, effective prayer, the essence of effective prayer. It lies in the exercise of authority Here you go. This is important. To accomplish God's will. I'll say it again. The essence of effective prayer, it lies in the exercise of authority, the God-given authority to mankind. To do what? To accomplish God's will. This can be seen in the Lord's Prayer, or as the Catholics would call it, the Our Father, uh, in the way Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. For example, in, uh, we see the Lord's Prayer um, in the Bible in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Um, what has become known as the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father included petitions for mankind's needs, uh, specifically a request for daily bread, uh, and also a deliverance from evil. But those parts of the prayer came towards the end of the prayer. The first part of the Lord's Prayer reflected the idea of taking on the likeness of God. We studied about that two weeks ago. Listen to the term, Our Father. That term, when you say, Our Father, Jesus is on earth and he's telling his apostles on earth how to pray. And with the acknowledgement, or rather with the statement and the calling the title out of the beginning of the prayer to say, Our Father, Jesus is making a point here. First of all, he's saying the word Our Father. So, if it's the plural of the word our, and Jesus, I can almost see Jesus almost using an index finger saying um, to his apostles, making like a circular motion, our, (laughs) and then pointing up vertically to the Father, our Father. What's that make Jesus to us in a family sense? Well, when Jesus is teaching that prayer, he's not our Father. He's not our father. He's not our, our 
Av. Av is the Jewish word for father. Um, I asked that question, and most people figured it out pretty quickly. They said, well, if he's not our father, he's, uh, and he's talking in a family sense, well, Jesus is probably our older brother. And, and that would be accurate. I think that's a pretty accurate description. But the use of the word our father is really an acknowledgement and places the focus on the relationship between the children of God and our father. Um, the next line was, hallowed be your name, speaks of setting apart as holy the essence of of the Father's character, hallowed be thy name. The elements of the hour part of the salutation of the prayer and the acknowledgement that our Father God is certainly holy, these elements, however, which constitute the bulk of what most prayers are concerned with, are really not intercession. They're necessary. But Jesus included a more focused directive on kingdom business. I'm taking this from the book now. Between the confession of our relationship with God and the presentation of our requests towards the end of the prayer lies the very heart of the prayer, right in the middle. It reflects the means of acting as the image of God, as, as mankind. That's our job. That's the children of God. That's what they're supposed to do. It means that we're supposed to act as the image of God that is representing him in what we pray for. So I'm going to say that again. The heart of the prayer reflects the means of acting as the image of God, that is, representing him in what we pray for. And here it is. Here's the middle of the prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth. Say it again, your kingdom come. You can imagine, you can insert the word Father there because that's who we're praying to. Your will be done, Father. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And we see that in Matthew 6.10. Now the author points out that typically the lines that we just alluded to about the Father's kingdom coming and the Father's will being done are broken up into separate statements. Um, the author says when you pray your kingdom come if thought about at all is regarded by most people to be some sort of general or generic term expressing some degree of desire for Jesus to return quickly back to earth um, along the lines of the statement in Revelation twenty two twenty, and where it says amen come Lord Jesus or that segment of the prayer is read as an expression that signifies going to heaven as in the phrase um, as the author says blown to kingdom come but the second part of the verse where it says your will be done is rarely seen as much more than an expression of willingness to submit to God 
um, by which it's implied something along the lines of commitment to obeying the Ten Commandments. But this is where everything turns. But the reality of what's really being prayed for, this is per the author now, the reality is actually a principle which, is, which was demonstrated by Jesus to the Roman centurion. To say, your kingdom come, is to request or to solicit that the rulership of God, through actively seeking to know his will, would come and be a part of what is being sought out. So this is accomplished by looking into heaven, where the will of God is routinely carried out without any obstruction or hindrances, to discover what God is doing there, and then demanding that the same thing that's being done in heaven now be be done down on earth, just as it is in heaven. So the, the author concludes, prayer is not a request in this context. It, in reality, is a command. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Again, I'm going to repeat that. This type of prayer is not a request. It is a command. Per the author, this is a prosecution of God's will by human beings. The ones who have been given authority to do so, just as we said in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. As though they are now acting in obedience, and they are being obedient to the king of the kingdom. Your will be done. Praying in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, is not accomplished by tagging these words on the end of a prayer. Rather, it's achieved by praying in obedience to the Father's will. And as the visible image of God, we human beings, we believers, we children of the Most High God, our job when we represent God, when we are image bearers of him, we were to reflect the image of the likeness that's been deposited in us. So as the visible image of God to the world, to those around us, we human beings are commanding that the Father's will come into existence. We'll see you on the other side of the break. God bless. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. We are halfway through this chapter uh, entitled The Restoration of Dominion Back to Mankind in the Kingdom book written by Don Ed of Olson. Uh, the byline under that is From the Creation to the Millennium. And we are in this chapter of talking about uh, Jesus his purpose is the restoration of 
several aspects of the kingdom of God. And the one that we're talking about today is restoring mankind's dominion to um, basically steward the earth, rule and reign, uh, to be kings and priests uh, in their different roles, but to basically his purpose is to take on the likeness of God and then to display it or put it on um, a field where it is manifested, and we do that as God's representatives. But the mechanism of putting on that manifestation of God's likeness has to do with the authority that mankind was initially given in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and that authority uh, is seen in the word and the function of dominion. So we were talking about uh, how we learn to pray in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus answering the question of how do we pray, uh, is basically saying um, this is how you pray, and we are halfway through the prayer, and the halfway mark is is really not a request of us asking God for something. We're not really soliciting something from God. It's um, the middle part of the prayer is sounds very different than a typical sort of um, solicitation uh, or imploring on our part of God to intervene or to do something. We're announcing something here. If you prefer, we are declaring something. Or if you prefer, we are proclaiming something. Or if you prefer, we are decreeing something. And that something is the arrival of a new government back on earth to replace the fallen angel takeover, hostile takeover of mankind's authority and to rule and reign over the earth and now the angelic rebellious kingdom of I'm thinking of the word in Jewish is hasatan and that means the adversary basically Lucifer Satan he has several names but he's been running the show ever since Genesis chapter 3 when Eve and Adam both, in essence, through deceit, through fraud, handed over mankind's authority or dominion over to a fallen angel who brought his heavenly rebellion against God that you see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 down to earth. So this prayer is announcing a turnaround. It's announcing a restoration of everything that Father God did in a blueprint in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. And material earth was not intended to be run by fallen angels. That was not the Father's plan. Material earth was to be run, if you will, to be... um, Influenced and controlled by mankind. But in their purposeful roles of 
taking on the image of God and then becoming a horizontal image of that that likeness out to other members of that kingdom on earth, other people. So they can learn God's ways. They can learn and see reflection of God's character, reflection of God's nature in the behavior of these representatives called children of the Most High God. So we got to the point where we identified our relationship um, with the beginning of the prayer, our relationship with our Father, declaring him to be our Father. So that's an acknowledgement of of what spirit we belong to. Father God is spirit. We are to worship him in spirit and truth per uh, Jesus' instructions. And uh, when we say our Father, we are basically saying we're acknowledging that you, Father, are our divine Father, our creator Father, and you are holy. But right away after we announce that relationship and that acknowledgement of his holiness, we're, we're praying in a way that is not the usual type of prayer of a request or a solicitation or an imploring of something that we are in need of. We are announcing something of significance to the spiritual world and to the earthly creation at the same time. We are saying, your kingdom come, Father, and your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So when we left off before the break, we concluded that this type of prayer in the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father is not a request. It really is a command. It's the prosecution of God's will by human beings with authority, the ones who have authority to do the prosecution of God's will as they act in obedience to the king of the kingdom. So praying in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit at the end of the prayer does not necessarily give it that level of authority. Rather, it's achieved... In reality, by obedience to the will of the Father. So, as the visible image of God in our roles of, as kings and priests, as representers of God's likeness, as that visible of the image of God to others, we human beings actually have been given authority to command, listen, this is important, the Father's will into existence. That's a game changer for most people. Um, The author goes on to give an example of what that sounds like, what that looks like. And this is the account of Lazarus in um, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. And the author says the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead dramatically illustrates the difference between 
this form of kingdom type of prayer, talking about your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and the typical patterns that dominate the prayer lives of most believers. Jesus received the word that his friend was ill, but he delayed his departure. And by the time he actually arrived, Lazarus had already been dead for four days. Nevertheless, Jesus asked to see the tomb, and once there, he had the stone that covered its entrance rolled back. And according to the author, that's where Jesus lifts up his eyes and he begins to speak. And everyone watching assumed that he was about to pray, and the words that came forth from Jesus' mouth sounded very much like a normal prayer, one that begins with the proper address to the Father and exhibiting a humble attitude of gratefulness associated with the forms of prayers used in most settings. And in verse 41 of John 11, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. But then Jesus makes a remarkable statement, quote, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. That's in verse 42 of John chapter 11. This is the author now. So in other words, the speech that would normally be understood as a prayer was really not a prayer at all. Jesus said those words for the education of the people who were standing around watching Jesus so that they could follow the details of what was about to happen. It's going to be an event to unfold. The actual prayer followed the earlier statement and was remarkably very, very short. In verse 43, here's Jesus' prayer. Three words. Lazarus, come out. This statement, this prayer, was not a request on the part of Jesus. Rather, it was a command spoken on the basis of the authority Jesus exercised as Father God's co-regent on earth. Jesus' faith was not in the conviction that the fathers would somehow step in and magically do the requested thing. Rather, his faith was in the certainty of the Father's will in that situation with Lazarus as Jesus had already seen it. And the certainty that as a human being commissioned in Genesis one twenty six with dominion over the earth, Jesus' command that the Father's will be done on earth, just as he had seen it earlier done in heaven, required to be obeyed. It had to be obeyed. There was no second option. There was no other choice. So the author goes on to say there are two factors that are essential elements of consistently effective prayer, effective prayer. Number one, a grasp, an understanding of the Father's will 
derived from looking up into heaven. Something to be discussed in the next chapter. And trust or faith, which is a confidence and a certainty expressed in the form of a demand, not a request, but rather in the form of a demand that the Father's will be done in that situation. In Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 1, faith or trust is defined as the assurance of things hoped for. That was the first part, but and the conviction of the things not seen. And this expects and assumes that the dictates of authority will be carried out. Just as the Roman centurion expected his orders to also be obeyed. So there's an expectation and an assumption that the dictates of authority will be carried out. So the attitude of prayer is not that of an oppressed victim barely hanging on, imploring for help, but rather, instead, it's the tone of a conqueror determined to win the battle. Consider some biblical references used as examples, frequently cited but not often understood or embraced to be militant to the degree that they suggest. So let's take a look at some examples here. Jesus characterized the entry into the kingdom of God in terms of a struggle. We see that in Matthew 11, chapter 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. We see in Matthew 16, verse 18, the building of the church is presented as an aggressive assault on the spiritual strongholds of the enemy who cower behind uh, their defensive gates. Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I want to point out at this point, gates are a defensive mechanism, not an offensive mechanism. So who in the kingdom struggle is on offense and who is on defense? Another example, uh, also using um, the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew 7, 7. Persistence is exemplified in the declaration, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. According to the author, each of these commands is given in the present tense, which in Greek suggests an ongoing action. So, for example, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. This is an assertive approach. And it's illustrated by the parable of uh, the persistent widow and the... uh, and the uh, unjust judge in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 7. But citizens of the kingdom 
are expected to be more than conquerors. We see that in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 37. It's an attitude. It's an expectation. It's a confidence. It's an understanding. Citizens of the, of the kingdom of God are expected to be more than conquerors. Paul, the apostle, describes the Christian journey as spiritual warfare in which we are not waging war according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10.3, but we are destroying strongholds, arguments, and every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. And we are to take every thought captive to obey Christ, to obey Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, I just want to take a real brief um, deviation here. We have about 30,000 thoughts a day in our thought life, of our 16-hour waking awake cycle per um, Caroline Leaf, who is a um, Christian, um, how should I say, she is a neuroscientist, and she has studied the truth of God's word as it applies to how our minds work, how our brains operate. So 30,000 thoughts a day are a lot of thoughts to take captive to make them obey Christ. Um, and so that's the warfare. I sometimes ask people um, when they say, hey, how long have you been a believer? And they say, oh, a certain number of years. And uh, that's when I gave my life over to Christ and this and that. And I ask them, when you gave your life to, to Christ and when you became born again, um, did that include your thought life? And boy, I'll tell you, the looks on people's faces is um, one of shock <laughs> and uh, um, really an inability to quickly respond because this Christian journey is a journey of spiritual warfare. Um, we are trying to attain something that is called eternal life. And as I have said earlier on other broadcasts, that's not eternal life is not defined as, as when I physically die, I go to another place other than earth. It's not in the Bible. Eternal life is a relational reconnecting back to what we lost, to whom we lost in the garden. Jesus came to reconnect us to the Father. John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. He didn't say, he did not say, no one gets to heaven but by me, but we think that. That's what we've been taught, whether you're a Protestant or whether you're a Catholic, that's what we've been taught. Um, the Messianic Jews, not so much. They understand the importance of getting reconnected to the Father through his Son, Jesus the Messiah. So, now one thing that the, let's move on, and we've talked about this earlier, but the author says a critical element, which is 
overlooked many times in the accounts of the miracles performed by Jesus, including this one about Lazarus that we just spoke about, is the fact that the authority Jesus wielded, W-I-E-L-D-E-D, wielded with such a powerful effect, was really inherent more in his humanity as son of man and not in his divinity as son of God. Jesus stated plainly how he operated. Look at John twelve forty nine. Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Um, I think it's in John 5.19. He says, he heard what the Father said and he did it. And this is an example. Quote, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's John 5.19. Jesus saw what the Father did. And Jesus then did it. Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus, our deliverer, acted on the Father's authority by submitting his own authority to the direction of the Father. In other words, in submission, by obeying the will of the Father. The author says Jesus certainly was God. We know that. But it's imperative. It's important. It was important that his disciples, his apostles, understood that his authority, Jesus' authority, to proclaim the kingdom and to declare the will of God was part of his humanity. Most of the miracles were done by Jesus in the capacity of son of man. And I think we talked about that earlier. Um, the author said that uh, Jesus is referred to in the four gospels about 12 times um, as son of God, but about 80 or 82, I can't remember what the total is, but it was way more um, the reference to Jesus as in his capacity as son of man. And there was messaging there. There was a signal there. And that signal was Jesus wanted his disciples to know what I'm doing, I am doing as the son of man with as a part of the original authority that was given to man, the original dominion that was given to man by the father in Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And he's saying, I'm restoring that same authority back to you. That's why I came back. So, I'll say it again. It's important that we as his disciples understand that his authority to proclaim the kingdom and to declare the will of God was part of his humanity. And therefore, we as his disciples could do the very same things that Jesus did. John 20, verses 20 to 21, 21 to 22, I'm sorry. John chapter 20, as the Father has sent me, even so, listen to what he says to us, I am sending you. 
Jesus assured them that as he imparted the Holy Spirit to them, that this is what's expected of them to carry out. Jesus, earlier in a conversation with Philip in um, John chapter 14, verse 12, he told Philip, truly, truly, I say to you that whoever believes in me, and the Jewish Bible says whoever trusts in me, will also do the works that I do. And then he goes on to say, and greater works than these will he do. So confident was Jesus that the disciples could imitate his ministry. He sends them out to try it. First, he sends out the original 12 in Matthew 10, uh, verse 8. Um, and, and then later in Luke chapter 10 also, Matthew 10, the, there's the 12, and Luke 10 is the 70 being sent out. And there was basically a declaration that the authority that Jesus was sending out the 70 with was greater than any residual power that Satan retained, even after the fall. And so in Matthew chapter 10, when the 12 went out, um, there was a proclamation of kingdom of the highest order. The apostles began with a declaration that people should repent, and then in connection with that, the 12 cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and and healed them, as we see in Mark 6.13. They proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, because the Spirit of the Lord was upon them. That's just what we saw in Luke 4 when Jesus began his ministry. So we're not going to be able to finish this um, chapter, but I want to encourage you to read the Lord's Prayer uh, with a new perspective. When the middle part of the prayer talks about a, your kingdom come, your will be done, is that a request on our part, or is that a command that we as agents of God are proclaiming, declaring, and decreeing? Until next time, may you be truly blessed with God's simple truth moments. See you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.